0: Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burrus. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Daniel Okrent, the first public editor of the New York Times and the author of many books, including 2010's Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. His new book is The Guarded Gate, Bigotry, Eugenics, and the Law That Kept Two Generations of Jews, Italians, and other European immigrants out of America. Welcome to Free Thoughts.
1: Happy to be here. How are you today?
0: Thank you. Doing well. So in terms of the genesis of the book and reading it, I – had read Last Call years ago, but it seemed like possibly you encountered this story when researching the progressives and their effect on prohibition, because it's some of the sort of same, at least social movement and story around the same time. So is that one way that you got connected with the story?
1: Uh, a, a little bit, because uh, as with Prohibition, uh, the uh, anti-immigration coalition was a, a, a real group of strange bedfellows. Um, you had Northeastern progressives together with uh, Midwestern KKK members, uh, the AFL, um, the leadership of the labor movement, uh, all gathering on, on one side of this issue, and much as, as similar groups got together, uh, surprisingly, um, to support Prohibition.
0: And as a In terms of the progressives, which I think this is a really important point, because we use that word today to describe a modern political movement, but we also use it to describe one of the first few decades of the twentieth century. Is it? Can you really say that they're the same people, or or should we understand them in a totally different way?
1: No, I I think it's important uh, to see that they are different in some ways. They're they're the same, which is to say that both believe in using the power of government to affect uh, social and economic change. Uh, but the progressives of the turn of the last century, of the early uh, uh, 2000s, they were a, a profoundly anti-democratic movement in many, many ways. So there were certain democratic re- reforms that they put in. They really believed in the, uh, the wisdom of experts and the application of expertise uh, to solving social problems and uh, included in, in the problems that they, they sought solutions to. One was. To educate and to train uh, the immigrants who would come to America, and at the same time to keep more immigrants from coming.
0: And uh, and then, of course, the use of science—I I think that's another theme that is is. I mean, I'm putting science in scare quotes here. There's a lot of scare quotes that are be happening actually, which you won't be able to see. <laughs> yeah, <true. laughs> we talk about science yeah. and and race and all these things, but uh, the the use of as you said, experts. But in prohibition too, we saw we saw this movement for for this, you know public health people saying you, you know this is people shouldn't be drinking for these reasons and right. and we see right. the same thing with uh, how many of. Of certain races or anyone should be led into the country. So when, what was the sort of situation like with immigration, uh, popular attitudes about immigration, you know, say in the 1890s, but before this whole thing kicks off?
1: Well, immigration and the Americans' reaction to it, it's been a sign curve from the beginning of the Republic. You know, Benjamin Franklin wrote an uh, extremely derogatory terms about the Germans' coming into Pennsylvania in the 1750s and 1760s, and he really wanted to keep them out. And then we go into a period of open doors. And then when the Irish arrive in the 1840s, there's a sudden the Know Nothing movement comes. Uh, During the Civil War, our arms are open again because there's a need for labor. And this keeps on cycling back and forth. By the 1890s, we entered a new cycle of anti-immigration, really pushed mostly by a number of Northeastern aristocratic progressives uh, primarily in Boston and New York. And they did in time discover scientific justification for for or so-called scientific justification. But they began, I think, with simple prejudice,
2: frankly. A lot of anti-immigration sentiment today is framed in terms of race, like the, the immigrants that the populace today seem to be most upset about are ones that we can talk about in racial categories. But the the examples you offered in answer to Trevor's prior question were Germans and Irish who we don't typically think of in racialized categories. So at this time when this this shift was happening and the emergence of the progressives and these arguments, was immigration seen at all in – racialized terms?
1: It it began to be. It it certainly starts in 1882 with the passage of the Chinese Restriction Act, when it was clearly directed against a nationality and ethnicity, uh, keep these people out of the country. And it was an extremely draconian act that closed the door to more Chinese. Uh, But in the 1890s, the immigration threat, as it was perceived, was coming from somewhere else. It was coming from Eastern and Southern Europe, largely in the form of Italians and Eastern European Jews. But also Hungarians and Greeks and Turks, uh, 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 Poles, um, the Slavic countries. Uh, there was a, a view that these people, they were different. They were not like us, whomever the you know the us was speaking, were the people who really ran the country at the time.
0: And you and you mentioned the. The Bostonians and Northeast sort of elites who kind of get this going, and you kind of alluded to the fact that we have the immigration restriction league. But when that kind of ramps up, at that point eugenics hadn't really, at least, it flowered in the way that it would in the next in the next few few decades. So, what what is the story of eugenics when that comes in uh, and then starts flowering?
1: What what basically happens, Trevor, is that that the the effort to stop the immigration uh, that begins in the 1890s fails over and over again. Uh, Henry Cabot Lodge is the leader in Congress, the first Henry Cabot Lodge, and he introduces and and, uh, affects passage of a literacy test that he specifically said during congressional debate was designed to keep out the people from Eastern and Southern Europe, Uh, but then it gets vetoed by Grover Cleveland. And he keeps on reintroducing it to Congress after Congress. 1912, it gets passed again and it's vetoed by William Howard Taft. 1913, passed again, vetoed by Woodrow Wilson. And it's not working. Their effort to close the immigration doors keeps getting thwarted on the shoals of politics, uh, particularly as the uh, immigrant vote is growing around this time. Um, And it's not until 1915, 1916 that they come across something else that will enable them to make their case it's no longer prejudice they're able to say it's science and that's eugenics the so-called science of eugenics
0: and where does that come from
1: it's uh really it starts uh right out of the darwinian revolution in in england the middle of the 19th century when darwin wrote the origin of species published in 1859 until then the almost universal view of the origin of mankind was we all came from adam and eve But once Darwin's theory of evolution uh, catches fire, then comes the realization that we don't all come from the same parents. And if we don't come from the same parents, then we're different from one another. Then if we're different from one another, some are better than others. And this gives birth to the idea of eugenics, which is put forth by, as it happens, Darwin's uh, 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 cousin, Francis Galton, the gentleman scientist, who has the idea that if government can arrange the mating of particularly uh, genetically strong and, 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 and uh, handsome and intelligent people, then we can have a better country. And he goes so far as to suggest that uh, the UK find the 5,000 best young people and match them in arranged marriages, marriages arranged by the state, have a wedding take place, a mass wedding in Westminster Abbey presided over by Queen Victoria. And then each of these families would get a subsidy to keep to produce children rather than to have to go to work. Uh, to make a better Britain. And this loopy idea crosses to the U.S. around 1900, 1905, um, and begins again as, a first, the effort to we, say we can improve the population by controlling breeding. And the other side of that is if we stop those who are not intelligent or who are morally suspect from breeding, that can improve things. And then in 1915, 1916, this idea is applied to ethnic groups. And it happens in a book by a man named Madison Grant, who was a wealthy New Yorker, who was the uh, leading conservationist of the era. He single-handedly saved the Redwoods of California. He was the founder of the Bronx Zoo. And he publishes a book that applies these ideas of eugenics to racial and ethnic and nationality groups. And that changes everything.
2: What are these arguments that these eugenicists and the, the anti-immigration people are making kind of look like in practice? So is this simply like, you know, if we let these people in, they're going to, you know, cross with our fine stock and we're going to end up in civilizational decline? Is it more that they're, you know, they're going to take jobs or they're going to cause like what like on the ground are the arguments that they're they're making to try to pass this stuff?
1: Well, all of the above, but primarily the, the the eugenic change is the first one. There had been the, the labor argument, uh, had been popular back in the 1880s and 1890s. Uh, Lodge's closest uh, ally and support of this was Samuel Gompers, the head of the AFL, himself an immigrant, as it happens. Uh, but he was absolutely with Henry Cabot Lodge, whom he otherwise despised. But then when eugenics comes in with Grant's book, it can be reduced really to a paragraph that, that Grant wrote in which he makes the case that. We know through science that the mating of any two groups in the animal kingdom or among humans, any mating of the two groups will produce progeny that revert in time to the lower group, to the lesser group. And he writes, he says, therefore, the mating between a Nordic and the Nordics were the finest of um, of Americans uh, coming from Northwestern uh, Europe. A mating of a Nordic and an Alpine will yield an Alpine. And the mating of an Alpine and the lowly Mediterranean will yield a Mediterranean. And the mating of any of the three European groups and a Jew will yield a Jew. So he was saying precisely that, that if we allow these people in and they intermarry with us, we will be welcoming the decline of American civilization because of eugenics.
2: What kind of scientific reasoning is this based on – because I don't imagine that they have like robust social science and survey data that they can draw on. They're not administering like IQ tests on a large scale. Is this really just like – it feels like is this more just guys who read Darwin and kind of think they understand it and then have some prejudices just like armchair marrying the two of them together? Or do they think they're – is there like – something that even remotely looks like actual research or science that they're stumbling well, there, towards. Well, there, there
1: was research, and there, this does coincide with the beginning of the IQ testing movement, which begins in the U.S. in 1908, 1909. And a man named Charles Davenport, a very widely and and appropriately respected animal geneticist, uh, he begins to apply the Galtonian ideas to America. And he conducts endless numbers of interviews and surveys, sending out really untrained college students to talk to people and find out what their background was and what their neighbors background was and three generations ago what did you, what do you know about that person well he was a drunk therefore really shoddy shoddy information supported by the Carnegie Institution of Washington by the Harriman family to a degree by the Rockefeller family and it was accepted at its time as scientific when this all ended and all of this data and Davenport had data on nearly a million Americans was given to a genetics institute at the University of Minnesota, the director of that institute said it was all worthless. But at the time, it carried the aroma and the aura of real science. So for the, the anti-immigrationists, uh, they could say, hey, it's, we're not prejudiced. It's the scientists who are telling us that. And there's the Carnegie Institution and the Rockefeller family and Harvard and Princeton and the American Museum of Natural History and all these important academic institutions where people are saying that this is scientific fact.
0: Yeah, it's throughout your book, you obviously had to read a bunch of stuff that was uh, probably difficult and also just laughable to, to read about this as masquerading as science. But there's always that undercurrent, and you, you kind of address it directly a couple times of, you know, are these people evil, stupid or, or scoundrels or they nefarious or are they true believers? I mean, obviously it depends on who we're talking about. But as you, you point out on page 132 about the field work from the eugenics records office, some traits the field workers were asked to identify were obviously genetic hair color, skin color, hair texture, less obvious perhaps, but potentially pertinent disease history, hair lips, speech impediment. Then the coding went off the rails. Interviewers were expected to determine subjects ability to retain urine whether they were quote excited then depressed by alcohol if they were quote easily offended did the subject suffer from backwardness or mythomania or wonderlust all these were thought to be genetic and it just—I mean—it just seems to me that it, this isn't that long ago. <laughs> I mean, really, it's not that long ago. My great grandma was alive at this time, and I knew my great—my great my grandma. Like, so, do you have a sort of conclusion? Say, with—I mean, it's probably per individual person. Like, so, Charles Davenport has people doing this. Was he nefarious? Was he? Was he?
1: Good. I think he was naive. Naive. Okay. I think he was naive. I think that he had learned a great deal in his studies of poultry genetics particularly that he thought he could just lift and apply to human to the human species uh, he also really misinterpreted mendel's discoveries mendel's papers discovered in 1900 and it has in it this idea of the unit characteristic the classic unit characteristic is colorblindness so that if two people who both have the recessive gene for colorblindness mate then the child will be colorblind but Davenport said, "Well, that applies to intelligence. It applies to singing ability. It applies to morality. It applies toward propensity toward drunkenness. It applies toward criminality." He went nuts, and he found a lot of support. You know, I I think there was opposition. The leading oppositionist was uh, the great anthropologist Franz Boas, uh, who was dismissed by Grant and others because, well, of course, he doesn't like this. He's a Jew himself. Uh, But it is shocking to the degree. It's shocking to our modern sensibilities to the degree that this was accepted science for a period and I think that the lesson there is that science only knows what it knows today it doesn't hasn't yet learned what it's going to learn and what seems preposterous now made sense at the time just as it made sense 400 years earlier to think that the earth was flat because how could it be round we'd be falling off scientists can only know so much and and uh, uh the progressive uh faith in science was so uh, uh, ardent that it was easy for them to pick this up and, and run with it. And then for the
2: oh, – Well, so I was just going to ask then how the the movement from – so you've got these eugenicists and you've got these anti-immigration people, but how that got picked up into kind of progressivism writ large. I mean so some of it makes sense in the terms of their, there's the social engineering aspect and this fits in, but like how did this become kind of a broader part of progressivism?
1: Well, I, I, I think um, it's a little bit – that's a little bit of a back formation. The progressivism came first – and it was accompanied by anti-immigration. By the time they get the eugenic idea, it's not really that much of a progressive thought, except insofar as it relates as it does in eugenics to the birth control movement, to Margaret Sanger, who was herself for many years an active eugenicist. Uh, So the idea of social control, presumably to improve society, Uh, that made sense. But the progressives and many not-so-progressives like Grant uh, who embraced the anti-immigration movement? They used eugenics to accomplish something that had nothing to do with their progressivism or non-progressivism. It had to do with their prejudice. Joseph Lee was the leading progressive in Boston. A man, you know, he supported settlement houses. He paid for keep the schools open so that children could learn. The immigrant children could learn English. He brought doctors and dentists into the schools. Uh, he actually he was host to folk dancing festivals. And then in his private life, he was financing the entire anti-immigration movement. His progressive notion was once they're here, we have to civilize these people, but let's keep them out if we possibly can.
0: And you point out that for some of these people, it does seem like maybe not Davenport, who is naive, but that definitely if you were a racist, you know, this gave you a, a, an out, an ability to just argue that you weren't a racist, and they actually started saying... You know, change your language. Don't don't use race-based terms. Say we're just trying to get the best people, uh, and and trying to hide that kind of racism that that was at least for some of them what was really animating this whole drive.
1: Right, and in the immigration laws, the various immigration restriction laws that were passed and enacted in 1917, 1921, 1924, race or nationality are never mentioned. There is not a single word in the 30,000 words of the 1924 Act, which was in place for 41 years and was clearly the most uh, race-driven piece of legislation of the 20th century, not a word that mentions any of those things. It wasn't necessary by that point. You know, in 1921, an article appears in Good Housekeeping Magazine and says that now that science has proven uh, through biological laws, that's a direct quote, biological laws that these people are inferior, we have to keep them out. And the author of that was Calvin Coolidge, a month before he was sworn in as vice president. By 1921, this was the accepted view, that this eugenic, genetic view of race and nationality, that's what America believed.
0: that's good housekeeping, which is uh, kind of an interesting... And also the Saturday Saturday Evening Post, like Norman Rockwell's covers were on magazines that contained virulently racist and eugenic stuff.
1: The, the uh editor of of uh the saturday evening post uh uh lorimer was he had been a progressive and then world war one turned him in a different direction and uh the it was week after week and this was the most influential periodical the most influential news medium you know this is the very early days of radio uh in, in the country uh camp you know sending reporters to europe to describe the awful circumstances in which these people live and attributing it not to their economic opportunity or to their uh, uh, to their education levels, but attributing it to their nationality and race.
0: Now, what about Teddy Roosevelt? He, he kind of he's not a main player in the book, but he but he shows up at different times. And one thing you mentioned, Franz Boas, being a, someone who actually resisted this. But there aren't many people who are clean in this story. I think who, who it, didn't at least endorse or like passively just at least say that that sounds like a good idea of these these abhorrent ideas.
1: No, that's absolutely right. Now you're right about uh uh Roosevelt. He was uh he he did believe in this concept that he pushed very hard of race suicide. Race suicide was if we the good people, the you know presumably the uh uh the the, pro- the Protestant upper classes don't reproduce we will be outnumbered by the bad people. And this was a pretty awful concept. Uh he did carry it but he didn't really carry it that far into the political arena. It was more uh, uh in in his writings and in his relationships with uh, various friends and and colleagues um the the degree to which this kind of thinking really infected american minds i think is best illustrated by some of the people who in opposing the 1924 immigration act people like Fiorello LaGuardia who was in congress then representing the most ethnically diverse congressional district in the country arguing well, we should let these people in because, you know, they're like us, but no, we have to keep the Asians out. (laughs) Basically saying, well, we're white. They're not. Let's keep them out. And you find many, many, uh, uh, particularly Jewish and Italian members of Congress and some political groups saying, let us in. Don't let them in. You know, this is a a horrible, never ending story that that, uh, every group seems to have to have another group to look down upon.
2: How did this I mean, we we don't still accept this stuff today. There are some turging corners of the Internet where this kind of thinking is still, you know, the the hip thing, but but by and large we've rejected this. So what did the what did the turn away from it look like and when did that start to happen?
1: Uh it starts to happen when a couple of the scientists do begin to re-examine their own work in the late twenties and early thirties. But the real change uh, it occurs in Berlin when the Nazi Party takes over Germany and begins to use the same arguments that have been used by the eugenicist anti-immigrationists. And in fact, Hitler in 1923, 1924, when he's imprisoned after the Beer Hall Putsch, uh, he reads Madison Grant's book in jail. He quotes from Madison Grant in several speeches in his career. And many of the American scientists, Davenport included, uh, had close relations with the German eugenicists who would become the, the, the race scientists whom Hitler depended on to put forward his, his racial theories. So back in the States, if you're the Carnegie Institution or the Rockefeller Foundation or the American Museum of Natural History, you say, oh, my God, look what we've done. Look what we've unleashed. And they begin to run away from it, as does the academy. So that by the end of the 30s, Hitler has utterly discredited racial eugenics. But, you know, 1946, the, the doctor's trial, the uh, German uh, doctors who were charged with war crimes, they said, you know, w- this wasn't original with us. You know, we were working with your scientists, with your American scientists all along. And as I write in the book, you know, we're used to the phrase, well, I was only following orders, when in fact they could have said, and many did say, I was only following Americans.
0: Well, you, you brought up Germany, and I think one of the interesting thing, I think it's in one of the second or third edition of Madison Grant's book, which is called The Passing of the Great Ra- Race, uh, by the way, for listeners, that – you he always was dividing up Europe into the good stock and the bad stock, but World War One made them have to suddenly be like the Germans are no longer good stock. They were good Teutonic stock, and now they're not. And then there's always this weird mu- movement to make them into Asians. They're always trying to make everyone <laughs> into Asians.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, just as you know, the Italians were really Africans. Mm-hmm. Was yeah, exactly, yeah. so, you know, there was invasion from Africa through Sicily. Uh, yeah, you know, Grant. Grant was a very gifted writer and polemicist, uh, and he knew the language of anthropology and of history, but he had no training, and he was making up a lot of stuff. So in 1916, um, he's still hailing the Germans. Then we enter the war, and we don't like the Germans anymore. So the the Germans, whom he had hailed as Nordic or Teutonic, now he realizes suddenly in 1919, in the the new edition. Well in fact only 10% of the present day Germans are Nordic or Teutonic the rest have come from the steppes of asia i mean this came out of nowhere total total invention on
0: this part. <laughs> I want to go back to Margaret Sanger. Um, I think you had some really interesting parts where you because if on the and she's still a live figure because abortion is is such a live debate in this country but in the pro-life people will usually be the first people to say that she was a eugenicist and then trot out some racist quotes that often get trotted out with her. I think you do a good job of, of kind of taking an honest assessment of that.
1: Yeah, uh, Sanger, the thing about Sanger, I, I think, is that she was so passionate or so insanely committed depending on your your perspective to her cause birth control that she would make an alliance with anybody who supported what she believed in so she had allies reaching from left to right uh, reaching across racial and religious groups uh, and anywhere she could get them she would she would anywhere she could find them she would adopt them as her own and if you stop to think about it eugenics and birth control do have something very much in common which is to say planned breeding Mm -hmm. it's not we do not leave it to the accident of love or of nature that we are planning things in such a way that we are determining what the next generation is so it was not a huge leap for her and she mostly used eugenics in her own arguments when she looked at the slums the ethnic slums and say see see how these people live we have to bring them birth control so we don't have more of this in this country
2: when when we look back on people like her or the the people caught up in this in general, is it we we want to assign blame, right? Like we want to look back and say that these were these were bad people. Um, but how much of an opportunity to see the error of their ways was there? So I guess what I'm asking is would it have been difficult to see around these ideas at the time or were they so pervasive and so accepted by all of the important people who you look to for validation that it would have been exceptional not to buy into them?
1: Well, I think that if you were free of prejudice and which of us is totally free of prejudice, You know, it's a very hard thing for humans to do. Uh, You would have seen immediately that that there's a a flaw in this thinking um but if you have a predilection to believing that there are differences between national groups then this was reinforcing your own your own prejudice your own your you know it it was a way of confirming that which you already believed so though the evidence was there and there were some scientists boas primarily but others as well uh, who were standing up and screaming, "No, no, no! This is bogus. This is why it's bogus." Those who had already made up their mind on the consequences of the sciences with science, which is to say, the the the, the creation of hierarchies of, of racial and ethnic background, uh, they weren't hearing the ones who were shouting alarm. So you have a, a man like the the eminent geneticist uh, Herbert Spencer Jennings of Johns Hopkins testifying before Congress before the 1924 law is passed. And he absolutely eviscerates the arguments of the eugenicist scientists. And when he is done with his testimony, the chairman of the committee who wrote the 1924 act says, well, now that we know that the biologists agree that this is true, we have to go ahead with the legislation. (laughs) You know, it hasn't changed a lot in that way. You know, you get a congressional hearing and the The parties who want to hear one thing only hear that thing, and they don't hear what the other people say. Minds don't get changed that easily.
0: So in that ramp up that, that, say, starting in the early 20s, we have... So, I mean, because the story in your book, I mean, it's from about the mid-1890s and the, sl- and the slow kind of growth of the immigration restriction movement with eugenics. But in those first years, right before the 1924 Act, what, what caused can – you, can you identify anything that caused the momentum to shift? I mean, we had the war, uh, and then we have maybe just an increasing awareness of just sort of bigotry because so many immigrants had come in that people – bigots had a, more of a opportunity to see people that they didn't like and vote and vote for lawmakers who were going to be immigration restrictionists or or something else that caused that to kind of switch
1: well you know as, as you said you know world war 1 certainly intensified anti uh anti-european really anti-immigrant views uh, the demonization of the Germans the Austrians and the other enemies of america in that war was uh was complete so you begin you begin with that uh and then you add on top of that the fact that from 1914 to 1918 during the european war immigration had, had come from europe had come to a virtual standstill for all sorts of obvious reasons who's crossing the uh crossing the continent by train to get to a port to get on a boat to cross the ocean when there's war going on um but then in 1919 1920 suddenly big crowds big you know number the, the the vast increase of immigration is another reason to you know, for people to be aware of it. Then you have Sacco and Vanzetti, and the Red Raids of the 1920s, and the the demonization of Italians and Eastern Europeans as radicals and uh, as as terrorists. Uh, So all these factors are coming together. I'm convinced that there would have been anti-immigration legislation without the eugenics argument. But what the eugenics argument did was make it respectable. It made it something more than mere prejudice. And it was a cloak that those who drove the movement were able to wear with pride, and they thought, impunity.
0: And you had Harry Laughlin, seemed like he almost just moved to D.C. and, and worked in the staff uh, who worked for the eugenics record office, and who I, in my writings on Buck v. Bell, encountered him and, and some of these people before, too. And he was just constantly testifying on the eugenics side.
1: Yeah, he was a he was a professional testifier, and he testified throughout the 20s. Uh, and he got more and more. He believed himself the more and more the more he was celebrated by the anti-immigrationists uh, who were in Congress. And you know his career ends with him accepting an honorary degree from the University of Heidelberg in 1936, shortly after they had purged the Jews from the faculty. And he's honored as the foresightful leader of racial thinking in America you know so the path to so the path to Nazism is is quite direct
0: oh yeah <laughs> so so what was in the nineteen twenty four law so was it was it completely shutting down immigration? did they name it by countries uh you know
1: no 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 need to name by countries what what they' had figured out by then was that Uh, There were other means that could be used. Now, the the, the eugenic argument didn't even have to be present in the law. There was the agreement that immigration had to be cut, and it had to be cut from certain countries, but that's not named the country. So they came up with the idea of a quota. The quota worked. If if 10% of the people living in America could trace their origin to country A, then 10% of the immigrants coming in in any given year could come from country A. Uh, First, they cut the number of immigrants allowed in to 162,000. There had been as many as a million, um, not that many years before that. And then they divided up that 162,000 based on this national origins idea. But here comes the most cynical, the most racist, the most horrible aspect, I believe, of all of this legislation. They didn't use the 1920 census to determine where the American population came from. They didn't use 1910 or even 1900. They went back 34 years to the 1890 census, and it was based on the composition of the American, the ethnic composition of the American population in 1890 that they made these determinations. Why 1890? That was before the big immigration from Italy and Greece and Poland and Russia and the rest of Eastern and Southern Europe began. So you see the Italians... there were as many as 220,000 Italians coming to the US in a single year. Under the new law, it was fewer than 5,000 were allowed in in a single year because they were basing it on the American population in 1890,
2: what was then the result of this in terms of actual restrictions? So, if you had, you said 200,000 Italians coming in, and then you set a quota that only 5,000. Did the number of Italians coming in drop to 5,000, or did we just yes. see? <laughs> no,
1: absolutely, it did. I mean, the the quota. Was... Was was hard and firm, and was honored for forty one years. Of course, there were exceptions.
2: Well, I mean, like, did we did we see um, undocumented immigration pick up the slack?
1: Um, no, you did not. I mean, there's no measurement of it. Uh, you know, und- undocumented you know, doesn't they don't pass through Ellis Island. But how are they getting here? How would Italians come into the country? Uh, do, do I did some go to Canada and then come through? Probably, but no. The and and the the composition of the American population, the, the proportion of foreign-born plummets between 1920 and the 1970s because the immigration has fundamentally stopped. And then you see something happening you know, late in 1939, uh, as the murderous intent of the Nazis is becoming clearer and clearer, a bill is introduced in Congress to allow 20,000 German Jewish children into the country outside of the quota. It gets voted down. Even then, it wouldn't be relaxed so that the numbers coming in were radically, radically reduced. The people, what they wished to accomplish, they did accomplish.
0: Well, what are you and you kind of try to play, a, a you know. What could have happened? Counterfactual game, game, especially with the looming crisis of Nazi Germany. Of course, they didn't know that at the time, but th- that would be coming up. Of how many people we might have saved, you know, if if we had put this law into 1924, especially attacking uh, some of the people who were most hurt by first the Nazis and and then actually the Soviets, I guess too,
1: and by the Soviets as well. Yes, uh, you know, that's exactly. The part of the world, uh, Italy, I guess, is a little bit different, but uh, uh, there it was simply horrible poverty and the the ruins of war that people suffered from. But if you look at that long swath of of territory between Germany and Russia, um, from the Baltic to the Mediterranean, uh, those are the people who might have come to the U.S., but were unable to come to the U.S. Now, can we count how many exactly or even roughly would have come? No, it's impossible. But you know it's in the thousands, if not the tens of thousands, if not of the hundreds of thousands. And it can all be traced to this law.
0: I like in the epilogue, you discuss um, the 65 Immigration Act, which a lot of people today are complaining about, um, which did away with this system. But also, I can't remember his name, the member of Congress who was there when Johnson signed the 65 Act, who had been there in 24.
1: Emmanuel Seller. Emanuel Seller was a congressman from Brooklyn, Jewish uh um columbia and harvard educated and he was the only member of the house commission committee on immigration who voted against the 1924 act it was in his first term in congress 41 years later he's still in congress he is the dean of congress he's the chairman of the judiciary committee and he is the co-author of the bill that finally revokes what his fellow committee members had put in place 41 years earlier
0: now of course this is a this this book is uh, well timed uh, uh for the kind of immigration discussion that's happening now and you don't get into it in the book about uh, But I don't think it's a coincidence that it came out at this time or that this interested you at this time but but what what are some of the lessons do you think that we can that we can learn from from this that maybe we can look in the mirror today and, and not go down a similar path
1: um to me there's one primary lesson i mean i believe that it is reasonable for a nation to limit immigration. How you come up with the number of people you want to let into the country, I don't know how you do that. But borders are borders for a reason. And uh, depending on economic and other circumstances, I think it's not unreasonable for a nation to say, we're only gonna let in 500,000, 700,000, 1,070,000. Who knows what the number is? But decide on the basis of the individual and not on the basis of the individual's race or religion or nationality. So when we hear the president saying we have to keep people from coming from these seven Muslim countries, or we have to stop the rapists from Mexico or the Hondurans as a national group, uh, that's when we're getting into trouble. That's when we're getting back to 1924. Limit immigration if you wish, but limit it on the basis of who the person is and not where he or she is from.
2: Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayres. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.